What's up, fellow passengers? Welcome to Rearview Movies, episode three. We're working on more sequels than we know what to do with here. Uh, my name is Scotty Williams. It's a pleasure to have you here. As always, my critic friend, movie industry buff, Trevor Kirkendall. Trevor, how are you today, man? Doing good, sir. You ready to talk about a couple movies? I'm ready to talk about one movie for once. Ah, we're going to just go one. Okay, that works. Yeah, so we got uh, the last couple episodes, we squeezed two in there just to get started, but now... We'll take our time, spread it out a little bit, have a little bit more room to talk about a few things. Well, I guess we should kind of start with a little teaser here. The movie came out, this movie, June 2nd of 2001 is released. June 1st, I think, but today is June 2nd. So June 1st, uh, 20 years ago, what was going on? What was going on? Well, I think it's fun when you go to that little website and tells you what was the number one song the day you were born. Yeah. Yeah. So I checked it out. What was going on June 2nd? Well, the number one mm -hmm. song in America was called yeah. Lady Marmalade by, uh, huh. with uh, Christina Aguilera and Pink. And do you remember that? I do remember that. Uh, very, very big song. You couldn't get anywhere in 2001 without hearing that song somewhere. It uh -huh. was everywhere. Every radio station, every music video channel was showing it <laughs> when they still showed or, music videos. Right. Or as it was said at my high school, Lady Marmalade. Lady Marmalade. No, no disrespect to my high school. Love my high school. <laughs> hey, another thing about June um, that this like this is kind of this kind of sucks. But do you know who passed away on June 1st of 2001? I have a hint, but I'm going to let you tell me. I don't think you have a hint. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Ray Walston died on June 1st, 2001. Who would, is Ray Walston? Would you not know have who had that a, is? Would not have had a clue. Who is Ray Walston? Yeah. Ray Walston is Mr. Hand oh from gosh. Fast Times at Ridgemont High. <laughs> I see. Just sitting back, eating pizza, learning about Cuba. <laughs> Love that movie. I but, did not uh, know about that. No, I did not. Well, on uh, on June 1st of 2001, what was going on with Trevor's life? I just graduated high school a couple days earlier. Um, so I was I was living the high life at that point. No responsibilities for anything. <laughs> How about Scotty? Where was Scotty on June 1st, 2001? Well, Scotty was getting ready to enter the summer before his senior year of high school. And... Uh, it's funny. I, the one thing I do remember is my, my dad had actually recruited me uh, to run cross country because our school was starting a cross country program for the first time ever. And uh, the coach was actually a guy who was a, a family friend. His, uh, his wife worked with my dad at the newspaper. So he would pick me up and we ran some cross country meets. And I remember the first meet we did, it took me 20 minutes to finish the race. And I ran it. I finished it like who does this? <laughs> but the coach, <laughs> but the coach was very excited. He was really fired up. Uh, and I like the joke with the cross country coach at my school. Um, it is a great way to get in shape. Uh, I ran, I was probably in the best shape of my life when I did it. And, uh, but you know, fun, fun fact to be the co-captain of, uh, one of the first, uh, teams in school, one of our first men's cross country teams in school history that I know of. They may have had one before, but, uh, I don't know if they could just find that many people in my community that wanted to run for fun, frankly. Let's get into our movie this week. And it's funny that Lady Marmalade was the uh, number one song because what movie was that from? I believe that's from Moulin Rouge, wasn't it? That's from Moulin Rouge. And that's what we're talking about today. Moulin Rouge, a wonderful, wonderful movie. If you are into bright colors, disorienting edits, and uh, it takes you a minute to warm up to movies. That's right. <laughs> so Moulin Rouge, um, for those that don't remember, uh, here's a plot summary from IMDb. And this will be your one and only spoiler alert because, let's be honest, you had 20 years to see the movie. 
The year is 1899, and Christian, a young English writer, has come to Paris to follow the Bohemian Revolution, taking hold of the city's drug and prostitute-infested underworld. And nowhere is the thrill of the underworld more alive than at the Moulin Rouge. But things take a wicked turn for Christian as he starts a deadly love affair with the star courtesan of the club, Satine. But her affections are also coveted by the club's patron, the Duke. The Duke. A dangerous love triangle ensues as Satine and Christian attempt to fight all odds to stay together. But a force that not even love can conquer is taking its toll on Satine. Sounds riveting. This movie's... It, do, it does sound riveting. That's a, that is a lengthy summary, I'll yeah. say. Well, it was the most interesting one. So, <laughs> <laughs> Movie stars Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, John Leguizamo, Jim Broadbent, and Richard Roxburgh. And this was directed by Baz Luhrmann, which was actually the third movie in what is known as his uh, Red Curtain trilogy after Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet. Sir, I believe you mean Romeo plus Juliet. That was Romeo plus movie. Juliet. You're right. Yeah. Excuse me. Hey, fun, fun fact. One of the first in-depth conversations we had was at you were working at Blockbuster Video and <laughs> dated reference. Alert. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was there on a date with my girlfriend and we were looking for a movie and I was like, what do you think of Romeo and Juliet? And you really did kind of let me have it there for a minute. I was like, man, this guy likes movies. <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, I was on a date with my girlfriend, luckily, who wound up being my wife for the sake of the story. Hey but uh, yeah, it was Romeo plus Juliet. I remember that film. Had you not seen that until that point? I had seen it. Or had I? No, I think I had. And I thought it was an interesting enough retelling. And I was like, he does not share my opinion. So I'm going to shut up. <laughs> did I, did <laughs> but, I, uh, did I light into it or? You did. You did. Yeah. I, I can't remember what the other choice at the time were, but I can remember being like, Hey, Trevor, there's that guy from class that Brad's friends with. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And, uh, but yeah. So if I, if I got the information here correctly, a $50 million budget for this movie, uh, which given the grand scale something's happened on is kind of modest. Yeah. Uh, but it says here opening fourth at the box office only made four and a half million in opening weekend. Uh, that number is a little deceptive, right? Yeah, it's deceptive because the movie actually opened um, on May 18th, actually. It opened in like four theaters. So it was a limited release. They call it a platform release. Mm -hmm. And then it expanded to the wide audience on June 1st, 2001. So by the time we actually got to a wide opening, it had already been out for, you know, two or three weeks at that point. It already had some money in the bank, but not a lot. So mm -hmm. four and a half million, you know, had there not been some kind of word of mouth up until that point, then it may not have done even that. But that's part of what the platform releases are, is you try to build up excitement for the movie through word of mouth. So mm -hmm. I think by the time June 1st had shown up and it came out, then it was a little bit more um, in people's minds at that point. So they were more apt to go see it because it, you know, 2001, it was still kind of hard to convince people to go see a musical. Right. Well, maybe that's an interesting question for why you would do a release like that for a movie that's going to have very much a niche audience, right? Yeah. Like uh, there's going to be a niche audience for musicals, correct? Right. Generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something that the, the general public is going to want to see. In fact, when I was trying to, uh, explain the most beautiful woman in the house that we wanted that we should watch Moulin Rouge so we could, uh, you know, watch it again for this review. Her first question was, uh, that sounds like a musical. I said, yep. She said, good night. <laughs> But it uh, looks like $57 million domestically, international of 121 for a worldwide gross of $179 million. Basically made its money back about three times over. Yep. Movie even scored eight Oscar nominations. Uh, Nicole Kidman was nominated for Best Actress. 
It also got nods for art direction, cinematography, costume design, editing, makeup, sound, and best picture of the year. Ended up winning only two of those, uh, art direction and costume design. Um, it did not end up winning some of the other ones because it ran into a little movie called the Lord of the Rings. Well, what did the, uh, it looks like the Rotten Tomatoes critics scored this film at a 76. The audience came in even more lovingly with it, gave it a very fresh rating of 89. So the summary on it basically from Rotten Tomatoes says that it's a love it or hate it experience. Moulin Rouge is all style, all giddy, over the top spectacle, but also daring in its vision and wildly original. So I guess the question is, did Trevor see Moulin Rouge 20 years ago and how did he feel about it? I know last week I said I tried to see everything um, that came out if I could. And actually, I did not see this one in the theater. I don't remember when I saw it. In fact, it was probably on DVD a year or two later. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I knew it was um, I knew it was going to be crazy. And uh, I did go into it thinking that it was going to be nuts. But I also knew it was really well received. So I was looking forward to seeing it whenever I got the chance. And yeah, when I saw it, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really, really good. Um, definitely a uh, a different type of musical you know with Baz Luhrmann that's the kind of stuff you get he's just that eccentric of a filmmaker anyway I mean Romeo and Juliet you know if you know that movie but you don't know Moulin Rouge if I were to tell you that the same guy made both then you would probably think that Moulin Rouge is going to be very you know just like it says wild and a big spectacle and way over the top and that's exactly what it is a, a colorful fever dream in quite a few places um yeah in fact uh yeah I, I very 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 colorful, much like the original uh, Romeo and Juliet. Colorful, fast-paced, lots of action. If you don't know the tone of the movie, if you don't know what the tone's going to be by the time the opening credits have finished, then you're not paying attention because I think right at the very beginning of the movie, it just, it lets you know what you're in for just right off the bat. It's a, this movie is an indie art film with big budget production values behind it. Well, I can tell you that in terms of seeing the movie, uh, I did not see this film when it came out as well. Cannot say that at my, uh, at my age in 2001, I was a big respecter of musicals. But again, it was one of those kind of like you said, big budget productions that it was kind of hard to escape, uh, mainly because of uh, Lady Marmalade and all of the ridiculously talented singers that were in it at the time uh, in that song. And then you're like, oh, it's Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor and... So you definitely knew of it. I did catch it later, and I'm not going to lie. The first time I watched it, I didn't finish it. Nice little uh, spoiler there, but did not finish it uh, the first time I watched it. Really felt a lot of that same vibe the second time when I came back and watched it again in the rear view. And the main reason is because I actually think that the movie is very true to what most people deal with when they watch musicals. The opening is big and bold and loud and colorful and for a minute you're like god is the whole movie going to be like this yep and <laughs> and it slowly slowly starts to enroll you a little bit at a time and then by the time you get to the you know towards the 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 climax and the big you're you're in you're locked in you're there you find yourself being really fired up about it um so i thought it was very typical of musicals in that regard and i will say one of my criticisms of moulin rouge as well is I'd like it when a movie kind of drops you in the middle and lets you, we've talked about this a little bit before, yeah. but it drops you in the movie and kind of lets you figure out things as we go. Like here, hop in the car, let's ride, let's figure this out. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't spell out the world you're in. It doesn't spoon feed it to you quite like that. Correct. And maybe it's just a feature inherent to musicals, but Moulin Rouge, I thought did that to the extreme, like quite mm. a bit to talk about. You know, they said the word Bohemian about nine times in the first five minutes. That part kind of had me a little like, okay, I get it. Let's go. Let's see some stuff happening. And then 
five minutes later, more than so many things happened to make me wonder if I had accidentally drank something with my dinner. I think the benefit of watching this again 20 years later is that you kind of knew where it was going and you kind of knew what to expect from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, when I first saw it, my first thought in the first couple, basically the entire first act was almost what's going on? Because everything was just so in your face and it was everywhere and it was just big and loud and all that. And if you weren't paying complete attention, you might sort of lose where you're, you know, lose where you're at at that point. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, it's not that I didn't like it when I first saw it. Cause I, like I said, I really did. It was just, it was, it's definitely dense. I'll say it's a de- definitely dense at the beginning, but definitely yeah, watching it again, you sort of know where it's going and you know they're not going to stay in the club for too long before they get to the next scene. But, I mean, it was... it The, the first act is really well put together in this. I mean, you know, the, the movie opens up with him kind of in the flashback sequence or, or starting to the, get to the flashback sequence where he's writing his notes. and Yeah. And then we flashback to him arriving and meeting the other bohemians in the building. Um which include um, John Leguizamo. I, I love and John Leguizamo. <laughs> he was so, how good is he, he in funny. this? And he he doesn't get enough credit uh-uh, ever uh-uh. for anything he's in. No. But he's he's great in this as um, uh, Toulouse. He's a he he's a very short gentleman, and um, yeah, I remember his name was Toulouse, but I don't remember. Uh, he was just one of that crew, right? One of that uh, yeah you know, kind of kind of group. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, the most recognizable one, obviously. I mean. Even before 2001, I'd seen him in a number of things, including Romeo and Juliet. But uh, yeah, seeing him in this, and he's great in this role. Yeah, and then we get to the club, and really the movie opens with essentially three scenes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have um, Christian at his apartment, Ewan McGregor, uh, and then we go to the club, and then we see them dancing around, and then we go into her like elephant dressing room or something. Yeah. And then they're in there for quite a while. And I mean, you got 30 or 45 minutes of screen time that have passed by. And we've really only done three scenes mm-hmm. at that point. But and my gosh, have we done those three scenes? Yeah, they're, they're a lot in there. I mean, it's, it's, um, the first scene at the club is just, it's dizzying and it's, it's an electrifying use of colors and costumes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're watching this and it's completely enthralling. So and many I know quick we talked, I mean, <laughs> yeah. And I know we sort of talked about this last week where um, where I was a little critical about the use of popular music mm-hmm. in um, in movies. Yeah. But I think that I think this is the way to do it. I think it really works here in a way because they're not actually like they're not using it in the soundtrack. It's not like they're they leave the apartment and they're walking to the club and, and the music in the background that we hear is like uh, Queen or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're, the music is part of the movie. And they're almost, you know, they write these songs for this musical that they're trying to produce. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're writing it with all popular music songs mm-hmm. with the lyrics from those songs. And I think that's the way to do it, because now you now you're taking things that people recognize and you're putting them into a different way. That's especially good for this because it's a musical. And if you want people to really pay attention and like your musical then having the music that they recognize is really good. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I thought the same way about it. I felt like the team did a phenomenal job putting the music together. There were a lot of nice, like, real dropped-in-there kind of taglines on it. Some of them longer than others, of course. Uh, they used a good bit of Smells Like Teen Spirit, obviously, and they used a good bit of Your Song, Elton John, another great song to go with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought they did a pretty good job putting those, putting all of that together in the film, uh, which was quite well done. Um But actually, uh, this does bring me to a question I'll kind of open some of this conversation with. One of the biggest things you hear talked about a lot when you're looking at movie adaptations of musicals is do the actors actually sing? Mm -hmm. And uh, the fun fact here is apparently not only did these guys sing, but Ewan McGregor was apparently a hell of a singer. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that about him. Yeah, I actually got right here. Nicole Kidman was actually pointing out that when they were auditioning, the actors, they actually had looked at, listen to this, they had auditioned Heath Ledger for the role. Um, They had auditioned Leonardo DiCaprio for the role. Uh And they had also auditioned Jake Gyllenhaal for the role. The funny thing is, Nicole had apparently, she said the the director, I think Boz is how you say his name, uh, had said, there's someone else I'm considering, Ewan McGregor. He can't come over here to audition, but I have heard him sing and he is amazing. Um, And then uh, Nicole paid him one heck of a compliment uh, by saying that in the course of one of their romantic scenes, he had to sing your song to her about 500 times. Mm. And she says every time she hears it, she still gets tingles. So oh, wow. there, there you go. That's what she said at the time when she was doing some of the press for the movie. Yeah. Uh, so, but so what was your favorite scene in this, in this film? Um, it's probably the pitch scene where they're pitching the, the musical to the Duke in yeah. the elephant dressing room. Mm-hmm. The, uh, so delighting it will run for 50 years. <laughs> That's, uh, I love that. And it's, the, the funny thing is, it's a very tense scene to begin with mm-hmm. because, you know, the Duke had left and Christian is still in there. And so he leaves and Christian comes back out and then the Duke barges back in and now he sees Christian there. So we're caught, right? But no, because his friends come in and he sort of, they sort of save him from that by saying they're rehearsing for the show. And then they basically spill out the whole plot of the show, like right on the cuff, right in front of him just to sort of hide the fact that something was going on here. Mm-hmm. And the songs that they're singing, it, it shifts tones throughout the entire scene so much. And there's a, there's certain parts of the scene that are very, that have a definite bit of tension to it. They sort of shift the tones and the music to match that, that tension. And it's just, it's completely with energetic cutting and, and choreography. And I mean, the room's not that big. And they're using the whole thing for their choreography, and it's really impressive. Mm-hmm. That I thought so too. I thought it was really. That's another one that went really quick. And they did say that you know it will run for fifty years, and they did it over and over again. Sometimes they even did it when he asked like a critical question, trying to shut him up and keep him moving. Um, but uh, that was pretty funny and. It is interestingly funny how you remember the situation comes together because of basically a case of mistaken identity. Uh, Nicole Kidman thinks that Christian is the Duke, and when she realizes he's not, he still manages to kind of woo her and win her over. But then the two subplots, they're trying to get this musical done, and the Duke is trying and they're trying to get the Duke to basically come in and save the theater. They kind of have a car accident that winds up working really well because a lot of people think on their feet in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody thinks on their feet in that scene, and it's really impressive but none of it ever really feels staged or scripted or anything like that it, it's really really good mm-hmm. i mean it feels like it's all off the cuff right in the moment as they're as they're um singing it but uh how about you what's your favorite scene here oh i can sum it up very easily here you go okay Run! 
Jackson. I, oh, I, I just yeah. I, the uh, I believe the unconscious Argentinian uh, who sang that song. Yeah. Um, I cannot get I cannot get his rendition of that song out of my head. Um, yeah. It just I don't know. Maybe it was just their take on it. But you know they put it together with that moment where Christian gets really kind of jealous and angry, and mm-hmm. and the way he sings it with such. I just I, I don't know that scene is where I really kind of got hooked on and was like, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm rolling with this. And, and again, it's another, it's another great adaptation of a popular song. Yeah. And that scene in particular is really, really fun because the, I, I think it looks like they're editing editing so fast that, you know, they're probably cutting on single digit frames. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like three cuts a second at times it seems, but they're also intercutting between um, the Duke and Satine up in um, his room for dinner, I think. Yeah, in the and Gothic she, she tower. She doesn't want to yeah. be there. Yeah, and so they cut between that and everything within the song. And again, you got this tension in there that is really powerful. And they're cutting between the dance that's really frantic and f- fast paced, and then they cut up there, which is really dark and. It's just it's brilliant the way they kind of cut back and forth between that stuff. It really mm-hmm. is. Well, it's it's and it's a great it's a great contrast because yeah. Christian's mind is that dance scene with rock with you know with him singing. It's mm-hmm. it's angry. There's lots of things happening. You know, stuffs bouncing around in his head. But over with Satine, it's calm. It's quiet. There's yeah. still a lot of tension, but it's a quieter, calmer tension. And they're kind of weaving them together. Yeah, and they dial it back quite a bit, but the tension never releases at all. Mm-hmm. So. And that's another thing that I noticed here is that this movie really does know when to dial it back a little bit. The whole movie is not that frantic pace. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as extravagant and over the top for two hours. They do take some time to slow it down and let them act and let the story kind of play out. And in fact, after that scene where they, they leave the elephant and then Christian's back at home, he actually goes back and then they have that interaction on top yeah. of it and you just get this sweeping view of of paris in the background as they're up there which i'm sure was created in a computer but still it's mm-hmm. it's still beautiful and it's um really well framed i guess mm-hmm. it's it looks so good even though pr- probably a lot of it was done on a green screen um it still looks really good and it's this is a movie that's for those people that are um they'll say every frame is a painting Kubrick, or something yes. like that. 127 and, takes. Yeah. Every frame is a painting, really. You could you could pause it any any point and it would look gorgeous. It mm-hmm. just that's just how this movie is shot. And it and at times, like I said, it knows when to dial it back, and at times it, it slows down enough for you to enjoy that cinematography that's in there. Mm-hmm. They're not going so frantic with that editing throughout the entire thing. I mean, that would be dizzying it would look like a transformers movie at that point but um i kept thinking of requiem for a dream watching the opening scene i'm just gonna say that i was just yeah. like this is all happening so fast oh my gosh <laughs> but you're right they, they did a pretty good job with pace kept it pretty tight um in fact i was actually surprised looking at it how quickly they got from like you said that opening bringing it together setting up the plot and the elephant to you know, there really wasn't, there was like that really quick interlude of uh, Christian and Satine are, are kind of getting on behind the Duke's back. That lasts like two minutes. That's yeah. one that could have been a lot longer, but we get from that to now everybody knows really quickly. It really does follow a typical, you know, love between classes story here. I mean, it is Romeo and Juliet again. It is Shakespeare in love, which itself is Romeo and Juliet pretty much anyway. So, yep. I mean, it's, it's that typical kind of thing too. 
And speaking of Romeo and Juliet, there was a song that was written for Romeo and Juliet in, um, I guess that was 96. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a song written for that that they couldn't figure out what to do with it. So they cut it and they didn't use it for the movie. And it was repurposed here. And that was the basically the theme song of the movie, which is Come What May. Come What May, yeah. Yeah, so that was supposed the, to the be... The secret song, right? Yeah, the secret song. Yeah, that was supposed to be in Romeo and Juliet. And it's just, it's it's pretty cool how... Because I don't think they changed much of the song. I think what you hear in the movie was what was supposed to be in Romeo and Juliet. Certainly fits. And yeah, and it's it's pretty amazing how the, it fits both stories pretty well. No, I think it does too. It was a good song for that moment. Yeah. And again, one of those one of those funny little see, I think ultimately what did the men is way too many wink winks. Yeah. <laughs> like way too many like, hey, hey, it's a lowly, it's a lowly sitar player. Ha ha, ha Maharaja. Ha ha. You know, I think they, you know, that that I thought was a little And the fact that caught. he couldn't pick up on that it just proves how stupid he is. So not one of the brightest villains in movie history, but uh you know, he's probably really the only downside, I think, is his character's not really fleshed out too much. So um, I don't really want to, you know, you obviously want Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor to end up together. You don't want her to end up with this guy only because you like Christian as a character. Correct. But you dislike him because they're telling you to dislike him. There's really no other way to to not like his character well again if, if you want to really frame it in terms of this bohemian revolution he's the embodiment of what the bohemian revolution hates somebody who's rich just because yeah that, that's true <laughs> yeah um now here's my question and, and one thing i i was really kind of kicking back and forth because of how much we rooted for the couple was it really necessary for her to have tb and die like right there well I mean, like, you what could does go that on. what does that add to the story? Do you really think the stakes need to be brought up that much? That's really my only criticism. Is um, obviously it's a it's a terrible side story, but as a plot device, I'm not sure it's necessary. Well, you kind of want to go back to the Romeo and Juliet thing, I think. And she's not going to kill herself, so you need something else to do it. Maybe TB was something really big which which for the record they called consumption for the record they called it consumption which historically right. was what tv was called yeah i mean that could have been a, that could have been a, a pretty bad thing going on in paris at that era i'm not sure but you know it goes back to you know juliet kills herself or even shakespeare in love nobody dies in that one but i mean she goes off or he goes off i mean they go their separate ways yeah and that one that kind of doesn't hold the same impact i think And I think that they want for this one to have kind of a, just a dark ending to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Boz Lerman really, really is into because a lot of his stuff does end pretty, on a pretty down note, if you will. Yeah. And while there is some uplifting here toward the end, uh, yeah, it is, it is pretty bleak, especially with her dying at the very end of the movie. And it's, it's a very overdrawn death scene at the very end (laughs) it goes on for a long time yes but given this movie's excess that's really not a surprise well it's honestly you 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 go back to the roots it's a musical um that's going to happen in musical that last scene is going to have you know a lot of those romantic scenes are going to have that kind of crossover where they're talking over each other but it's rhythmic and so yeah i can i can totally see that and i mean it even though it's excessive and it's overblown and all that it's it's still Amazing performances by Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor in this moment. Absolutely. Which is nuts that, 
you know, Nicole Kidman was nominated and she did not win for this movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, now she who now who won that year? Well, so Halle Berry wins for uh, Monsters Ball. Ah, uh, yes. So I'm not gonna say that they got it wrong, per se, mm-hmm. but it's certainly one of the most dynamite performances that Nicole Kidman has ever turned in. Mm-hmm. And the fact that this is not the movie that she wins an Oscar for is kind of disappointing. I mean, you can't really do much about when you go up against another truly remarkable performance like what Halle Berry turns in in that movie but I mean this is the this is the role I'll always remember Nicole Kidman for I mean when you say Nicole Kidman this will be the first thing that pops in my head it's certainly better than Dr. Chase Meridian I won't lie about that yeah (laughs) (laughs) I mean and she'll win she'll win an Oscar next year for playing Virginia Woolf in the hours but uh, yeah, that this is um, this is the movie that she really nailed, and it is kind of disappointing that she's not the um, the Oscar winner for it. But can we talk about how great Jim Broadbent is in this movie? Mm-hmm. Sure, as the owner of the Moulin Rouge. Yes, Sit- yeah, Sit- Sittler, Sattler, Sittler. something like yeah, something like that. Man, he's awesome. I mean, just his opening sequence in the uh, in the Moulin Rouge when they first get there, mm-hmm. and he's dancing and they're doing the can can and all that and. Yeah, he's kind of directing um, traffic, I guess you could say. Kind yeah. of a ring, very much a ringmaster. Yeah, and then when he comes in for the pitch meeting, and they try to nudge him into the direction that they want him to go into, like, hey, we're we're trying to convince this guy here that, you know, this is what we're doing. They're like, he's here to invest, and he goes, invest, invest. <laughs> oh, Zidler was his name. Zidler. Yeah, Zidler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was that's uh. That's fantastic, and he's fantastic in this role. And mm-hmm. he was actually he actually wins an Oscar this year for the movie Iris. Hmm. Uh, so not for this one, but I gotta believe that when everybody was penciling in or bubbling in their their ballots that year, that when they voted for Jim Broadbent, they were thinking of this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and he ultimately winds up saving the day again. the The Duke is gonna the Duke's gonna shoot one of them, and. Uh, and Zittler stops in and, you know, comes in, swoops in, saves the day. Yep. So 20 years have passed. Yes. And where does this movie sit with you now? Oh, far better. Far better. Yeah. Um, again, I, I think uh, it's one of those where I'm not going to lie. Even when I sat down to watch this movie in the rear view, you know, I'm watching the first couple of minutes and I'm just, man, is this, is this going to be the whole movie? Oh my. But again, <laughs> very typical of musicals. You watch it. It takes a minute to get you enrolled. It's like a, it's like a crock pot, right? You put your ingredients in. You dump. You wait. You feel like it takes forever, but then something very special comes out the other end. Um, at the end of the day, I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, the music was was very well put together, and it goes on that long list of uh, well, not long list, pretty short list of musicals that I enjoy. Uh, right along with uh, your favorite musical, Rent and Phantom of the Opera. Oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I actually. Greatly improved its stock in the rear view. How about you? Yeah, it's um, I, I definitely enjoyed it a lot more this time around. Not to say that I didn't the first time, but uh, this time around, just picking up on some of the things that I didn't get to see the first time, mm. mostly be, being overwhelmed by the, the sensory overload that is this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was definitely uh, a lot better. It really holds up. Um, probably It probably holds up better than a lot of these movies we're going to be talking about this year. I would say so. And maybe that's just one of those where you make a movie and there's a lot of depth to it. And the depth is what holds up. 
because, mm. you know, there's lots of movies you can watch. Well, you know, we watched uh, A Knight's Tale, right? And there's really not much to A Knight's Tale beyond just the jousting. So, hey, mm-hmm. the jousting is cool to watch. But then in Moulin Rouge, you can appreciate the music. You can appreciate the performances. You can appreciate the set design. Um, bigger, deeper movies give you more to appreciate on second and third mm-hmm. viewings. That's right. Well, Trevor, I guess that's about it for Moulin Rouge. Uh, what's our encore going to be next week? Well, next week, we're going to check out uh, a long-haired John Travolta um, doing his best uh, Al Pacino Dog Day Afternoon impression. Can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please, please help us uh, continue. Give us feedback. We want to put together a great show for you. So please take the time. Give us some feedback on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Rearview Movies. Also, you can continue to listen to this. Please take it to the next step and hit that subscribe button for us. You can find us wherever you find podcasts. That's Apple Music, Spotify, and Amazon. Looking forward to seeing you guys again just a little bit further down the road.